Good morning, good afternoon, and good evening, ladies and gentlemen. Welcome back to The Caring Economy with me, Toby Usnick. Today's guest is Christine Heenan. She is a senior partner and chief communications officer for Flagship Pioneering. Flagship Pioneering is the force, the venture capital force behind the uh, Moderna, the vaccine manufacturer, and several other initiatives that you may have heard of. We're going to explore those various organizations today, but first and foremost, I want to welcome Christine to The Caring Economy. Thank you. It's great to be here, Toby. My dog Josie's announcing herself as well. It's, I think, uh, COVID era recordings, not, uh, we, we just adapt as we need to, but it's great to be here. You're great sport there as my phone just rang. I put it on mute now. Uh, so Christine, uh, you have had this incredible career. You have worked in the White House. You have headed communications at Harvard. You have worked for the Rockefeller Foundation, basically overseeing all their programming and external affairs. And now you're working with this pioneering pioneering firm called uh, Flagship Pioneering. Tell us your narrative. How did you get there? It didn't just happen through coincidence. Uh, sure. I mean, I will take you back to, it's kind of full circle because I've just returned. I moved in April back to the Boston, Cambridge area. And the story starts, I think, meaningfully with my going to journalism school at BU and just wanting to spend my time around words and ideas, policy, government, communications. Mm -hmm. And uh, my first, I would say, pivot was a summer internship in Japan that led me to get a job offer at a BCG spinoff, a consulting firm that didn't feel um, the, uh, the trajectory that I knew I wanted to be on with communications, but it felt relevant. It felt a little bit like being paid to get a business degree, having not studied business, having uh, no real facility or background in it. I thought I'd learn and took the role in order to learn and travel. Um, I... It was very formative because I had to learn a lot of things that required starting at zero, um, asking the right questions, figuring out how to interact with clients, which was new to me. And um, that path took me to the White House because my boss was a good friend, an uh, Oxford classmate of Bill Clinton's. He uh, was drafted to come in and help with healthcare reform and a few of us on staff came along as uh, policy advisors. So I joined the White House staff at 25 uh, as a senior policy analyst working on healthcare reform and gravitated from that role into a speech writing role. And in that era or that attempt at universal healthcare reform in the Clinton era, yep. there was a, a noted gap that um, there were policy people who were steeped in the various strategies for increasing coverage, lowering costs, uh, incentivizing people's health but who, who spoke a language that was foreign to outside of their policy circles. Mm -hmm. And then there were very smart, savvy political communicators who knew what tagline would break through, who knew how to set up the shot for the press conference, but didn't have a deeper abiding interest in the policy specifics. Mm -hmm. And that kind of became my niche and my, what I would say, my dual passport career. I am either a communication savvy policy person or a policy interested communications person. That was my role in the Clinton administration and then in the roles I've had since. Sort so of I went, yeah. or a diplomat. Yeah, and also I would, I would say driven by a strong belief. My belief is that the best speeches are well-reported speeches. The, the spe some specifics, you can, if you get down into the specifics of a policy, you're better, you're more knowledgeable to then lift up to how to connect it with other people. <laughs> Um, who aren't going to pay that level of specific attention. So I, I really believe 
there's a lot, I mean, and government trains you to, to think in terms of policy, politics, communications. And that's been an important inflection point for me in my career. And also you're on the firing line, right? In government. I mean, it's this constant attack from all sides. So you have to be pretty stalwart and, and a good listener as well as a, a doer, right? Yeah, and I think being, um, that was a very young White House and being a young person and working on things that were you know, on the front page of the paper the next day. You know, I remember um, my colleague Liz Bernstein one time making a comment as she walked through the West Wing lobby saying to a colleague, who's the guy in the Dalai Lama get up? And someone said, that's the Dalai Lama. <laughs> and that, you know, that's what it's like to work in the White House. And, and I, you know, I, I often, um, just as they say youth is wasted on the young, I, I look at the hours that we put in and I'm not sure I would have had stamina Yep. at a later stage of my career, but I wish I had some of the wisdom and maturity that came later in my career to bring to those weighty conversations and just to drink in your role in history making. Yeah, well, and also I guess pre sort of iPhones, you, you, you could have had a great opportunity capturing some of those moments <laughs> for, for posterity. But, yeah, I wasn't but, a journal keeper, although I was earlier in my life, I wasn't in that phase. It was like, you know, I would come home and collapse and you know, get up when the alarm went off and drag myself back to work. But um, it was an era of pagers. You know, I still, I wish I had some of those key his pages from various um, okay. stories. I remember looking at my waist and feeling very important that I was being paged. So. Yes. Well, interestingly enough, um, I think you and I, because of our background in communications, we've always lived on deadlines and knowing what we say can and likely will be repeated. So we are sort of uh, ahead of the curve with regard to social media, I think. True. Today, I wonder how how that plays out in big brands and how they keep their employees from going off the reservation or revealing information that's you know not appropriate. Perhaps you can talk about that because you work now at um, at flagship pioneering, so you're working with really exciting VC firms, or, sorry, startups that the VC has invested in. Highly confidential information, right? Markets could trade on the information. How do you well, let's back up. Tell us a little bit about flagship pioneering, and then we'll talk about how you manage communications at a VC firm in such a highly visible space as, say, Moderna and vaccines. Sure. Let me start by saying that um, while flagship does do um, some of the activities that are associated with venture capital, we raise funds and invest those funds in our companies. We Saying flagship as a VC firm is a bit like calling Microsoft a gaming company because they make the Xbox. It's absolutely part of what they do. It's not the primary thing we, they do. Mm -hmm. So flagship and what makes it different is flagship employees, the majority of their employees are scientists. So they develop their own scientific platforms and then capitalize those platforms and the IP into early stage companies. They then bring in, and those, that's funded in part by investment dollars and then in later stages, uh, other investors come in and those companies eventually become what we call growth co's. And um, most of them IPO or merge with other companies and, and uh, meet the commercial marketplace. Mm -hmm. So it is a company whose product is companies and those companies products are therapeutics, medicines, uh, interventions for agriculture and sustainability. Mm -hmm. So it very much, you know, thinking about your show and the caring economy, I think what drew me to flagship is the idea that um, health and biology, understanding of, um, of human biology and illness and disease mm -hmm. and sustainability and how we um, extend the life of our planet and take better care of our planet are 
two of the driving questions of the 21st century. And so working in a scientific organization determined to help shape the answers to the big questions in those two fields was a, a real draw. Mm -hmm. Well, so that concept of well-being, um, you're now on the sort of the solution side of it. Previously, you were at Rockefeller Foundation funding solution creators. Before that was Harvard Communications. I, I don't want to skip over any of these great August organizations, but with with flagship, are you um, do you find that leadership is what's really setting the tone? I'm really quite in awe of your founder, uh, Nubar Afayan, right? Armenian, the son of a grandson of Armenian Hol uh, Holocaust survivors, who has said that that diaspora, the Armenian diaspora has actually done well because it's remained nimble in order to survive. Does that nimbleness infuse work at Flagship Pioneering? It, it, it not only infuses it, I would say it's central to the DNA of Flagship. It's so Nubar, as you said, his grandparents fled the Armenian genocide. Um, his father left Bulgaria to come to Lebanon to find, to find work and establish his business or expand his business. And then in turn, his family his parents, Nubar's parents, brothers, and himself, and his great aunt, who was a big influence on his life, um, left Lebanon during the Civil War, actually just before the Beirut airport closed for many years. And they were political refugees to Canada. So, you know, imagine being 13 and seeing snow for the first time, seeing a city bus for the first time. And he describes the um, comfort with being uncomfortable that immigrants um, developed by, by no, no choice of their own. Mm -hmm. They have to figure out how to um, make it work in a place with new norms, new customs, often new language, new climate, uh, new schooling systems, new policies. And he says that immigrant mindset that allows you to feel comfortable at the edge of your own knowledge base and understanding, feeling comfortable being uncomfortable, mm -hmm. knowing risk being um, rejected or made fun of, whether it's for your accent or a question that would be obvious if you'd grown up somewhere, is, a, is really key to entrepreneurship. Mm -hmm. That you're gonna you know, put ideas out there that may get rejected. You're gonna ask big what if questions and imagine a world other than the one you occupy just as you've done as an immigrant. And so he believes that the immigrant mindset is not only key to flagship, but key to all entrepreneurship and innovation. It's exciting to hear that. It's very life affirming. I wonder, though, about the mission also flagship that is in that sense uh, we talked about a moment ago about well-being of people and communities. So it's not just bringing the entrepreneurial spirit, but to what end? And he seems to be you seem to be really shooting for much higher purpose than than the average startup or the average entrepreneur. I think that's right. And I mean, there's, there's no better um, current manifestation than that than flagship founded Moderna and what it's doing to bring uh, vaccines to the world and safety from this virus to, to millions of people around the world. But we are thinking increasingly about the extensions of um, preemptive medicine, of thinking about what would it look like to be able to treat uh, stage zero cancer, to be able to use a biopsy to let, to give you an indication of what may come down the line as opposed to today. Um, and to be able to develop a global pathogen shield that protects you not just against one virus, but against any variant of virus or any future virus. So it's really exciting work. And it's exactly, as you say, in that space of focusing on thriving and not just surviving. Can you talk a little bit more about the Moderna, um, the creation of Moderna and the uh, 
creation of the vaccine that has really taken the world in a wonderful way. How, how exciting to be on the, uh, in the trenches making that happen. Sure, and a, a fellow uh, colleague of both of ours, Toby, Ray Jordan, heads up communications there, and Ray and I have the opportunity to work together closely. The, the founding story of Moderna, it started its life as LS18. We number our companies at Flagship when they uh, emerge from our labs. It was the 18th such life science company, so LS18, later renamed Moderna based on the core scientific insight of uh, encoding messenger RNA, and allowing it to serve as a basically a, a pharmacy inside the body, manufacturing an instruction and a protein that uh, would allow it to be used for medicines or, in the, or vaccines as we're seeing with Corona. So um, Moderna really came on the scene during COVID-19. And so it's often referred to as a startup 10 years in the making. It was a very, uh, Moderna uh, started in 2011, I believe, and spent a lot of time perfecting how to uh, work with messenger RNA so that it remains stable, to allow it to be coded with instructions, to, to encase it so that it can successfully um, be injected in the body without being rejected and without breaking down. So a lot of innovation, a lot of work over many years allowed in January when Moderna's CEO, Stefan Bonsal was uh, asked to get engaged and engage the company in this newly sequenced virus from Wuhan Moderna was able to very quickly take that uh, sequence of the virus and create a vaccine. Wow. And the trials uh, went, you know, went through the normal FDA process. Actually, Moderna sl deliberately slowed down its trial to make sure it had a diverse cohort mm -hmm. so that we'd have information about people of color, seniors, others when the trial was over in terms of safety and efficacy. Mm -hmm. But you know, it's important to know that the people receiving Moderna vaccines today are essentially receiving the vaccine sequenced last March, wow. you know, it was, and, and it, it, I think it should fill us all with hope about the ability to quickly respond to future viruses. It, it has, and I, I actually think that it's an interesting observation how the industry has collaborated, right? I mean, Trump gets, President Trump gets some credit for bringing these forces together, but it was the private sector that really delivered quickly. Um, and you did it all, it seems to me, in a collaborative way. You had your proprietary technologies and information, but you still put the higher, the the higher cause of the people's well-being front and center. Is that a, a fair statement? I think you're right to point out that it, there was an unprecedented level of private sector collaboration, and also the public-private sector piece that you noted. I think um, certainly my boss would credit Operation Warp Speed with really doing an amazing job of removing obstacles to speed mm -hmm. and making sure that whether it was manufacturing or parts or supplies, nothing slowed the science down and, because there was no time to waste. So I think it's a, it's a really interesting model that will be studied and that we'll all learn from for future public-private collaborations in the regulatory and health spaces. Again, ladies and gentlemen, today on The Caring Economy, we have Christine Heen, and she is a, both the senior partner and the chief communications officer for Flagship Pioneering, the Cambridge, Massachusetts venture capital firm that's behind such noted brands as Moderna. Uh, Christine, tell us a little bit about some of the pivots you've made, maybe somewhere between the White House and, um, and uh, Flagship. You were sure. at Harvard. You had a family along the way. You 
you've been busy, both yeah. professionally, it can all be flawless or, or, or am I projecting? No, no, I think, I, I think the, the irony or the funny thing about careers is you can look at your CV backward and it looks as though there was a through line or a plan or that it makes sense and that there's one that builds on the other. And in fact, in my case anyway, it was a lot of jazz and a lot of just picking up an instrument and playing. So I, I was exhausted after healthcare reform and it was unsuccessful in the Clinton administration. So the experience of the early years in the Clinton White House is there's a team that sprint to the finish line and it's, it's a nail biter, but they get their bill. So first it was the first budget, you know, the crime bill. And, and for healthcare, we didn't get our bill, you know, and it wasn't a sprint. We had a two year marathon that led to, I mean, it, and we could take comfort in the fact that we failed where FDR failed and Truman failed and every other effort at bringing Americans uh, universal coverage, but it was cold comfort because we knew we were the ones that read the letters from people around the country counting on, counting on things to change in their ability to see doctors to get in insurance that really covered them, all those things. Mm -hmm. So I had in mind, uh, let me tell you how, how planful I was in my career. I wanted a job that would allow me to have a dog. And that was sort of, that was sort of metaphor for, I could reliably feed and walk someone within a 12 hour window and I could, you know, and not be living on a plane. And Brown University, which is located in Providence, Rhode Island, which is as close to my hometown as anywhere. I spent uh, 10 years there growing up after moving a ton as a kid. Um, recruited me for a role in government and community relations and communications. I had been thinking about graduate school and the combination of a university job that I and, and graduate school, which I thought in combination would still be less intense than my role in Washington and in a place that I was familiar with and comfortable with and where I had family um, made a lot of sense. So I um, enrolled in, was, I was accepted into the PhD program in political science at Brown and was working. Um, I, I got married, had my first child, something had to give. And between motherhood, work and school, school was the easiest to put on hold. Mm. And when my, I went back to work four days a week, universities are great, uh, even pre-COVID and before accommodating working parents was much more of a workplace mandate than it is now. Universities understood people have other lives and um, we're early, I think, in mm -hmm. some levels of workplace flexibility. And when I had my second son two years later, I just wanted to work even more flexibly. Mm -hmm. So I created my firm, Clarendon Group. Uh, it was na it's named after the street I lived on at the time. So not a lot of creativity or backstory there beyond a, you know, a sleep deprived mom looking out and saying, that's a neat word, that'll do. Um, and my neighbor uh, next door who was home raising three kids, I was home with two, was my first employee and collaborator. And the firm grew from there. And it was really, um, I have worked to this day around issues of uh, women's equality and opportunity for women and girls. And I think that was a formative period of time because our firm ended up being a magnet for women who um, either had come to Rhode Island because their spouse had a job there, even though they had a big job in San Francisco or New York or DC, or they had young children, but still really wanted to contribute. And we became a magnet for, for those employees. And um, it was just a powerful reminder that if you allow people to structure their work in ways that allow their, their whole person to thrive, you get incredible work product and, and loyalty and, and happiness. So 
uh, it was a great period of time running my own business. And uh, my father was an entrepreneur. So I sort of had some encoded memory of his early days um, running a business and what I saw from him in terms of how he treated his employees, how he thought about um, his employees and his customers. Mm-hmm. And I, you know, and I'd had that early consulting experience before going to Washington. Yeah. And I did that until 2008 when I was recruited to Harvard to run um, public affairs and communications. It's sort of the position that I reported to at Brown before I left Brown. Mm-hmm. And I was really drawn to uh, the ability to work in an institution that was, uh, that so many, it was a leader that others looked to and followed. Mm-hmm. And I also viewed it as a, a, a institution that was so well resourced that as an idea generator, um, you know, there could be a thousand reasons you'd, you'd get a no, but not because we don't have the resources. Yep. That was sort of ironic thinking because I started in September of 2008, I think about eight days before Lehman went bankrupt and spent the first year to 18 months helping navigate communications around a, a devastating loss to Harvard's endowment and the changes to practice and policy at the university that resulted. So, And was that under, that was Larry Summers you worked under? Immediately following, it was Drew Faust. Okay, and how... How was it uh, working for those guys? Is it you know you know you spoke about how your own firm was so gender inclusive and and wonderful. How was it being a woman uh, not in the top job? Well, important important for your listeners to know that Drew Faust was the first woman president in Harvard's 360 year history. Oh, I'm and sorry. no, that's okay. It's important to to, to make that clear. And it was a big part of the job actually. Um, she was a Civil War historian recruited from the Radcliffe Institute, who um, was recruited in part because of she's a deep institutionalist who had extraordinary judgment and is lights out brilliant. But in a moment of financial crisis, following a president who'd been Secretary of the Treasury, you know, many wondered, well, gosh, is this person who studied the Civil War going to be able to navigate this? multi-trillion dollar institution through these rocky shoals of a financial crisis. But I think a lot of that was very gendered, you know, and she managed so capably and so well through that period of time. And actually among her biggest fans and supporters and devotees were those very leaders who had a big question mark um, at the outset of her presidency during the crisis. So it was a, it was a real, it was a privilege of a lifetime to work for her. Mm-hmm. And also a front row seat to what women in the top spot face and how much harder that is mm-hmm. uh, from everything from credibility to benefit of the doubt to tolerance for mistakes. Can we uh, extrapolate from that for a moment? I'm, I'm mindful of the time. I want to give you one last question, which is related to DEI, the whole diversity, equity, inclusion. You've been practicing it, particularly with a gender lens throughout your life. It, it, it's so topical to business today, to society mm-hmm. today. And I wonder. Um, what lessons can be gleaned in your life experience or that you would recommend to business leaders that you do recommend to business leaders about bringing everyone along, right? According to their, their merits and capabilities uh, versus leaving some people behind. It's a, it's a great question. And I think um, that if I were to distill it, I would say as, as long as we all have tendencies to hire in our own image, then until most people in hiring positions aren't white men, mm-hmm. we are going to, well, we shouldn't be surprised that most of the people who are hired and promoted 
turn out to look a lot like those people in leadership positions. Mm -hmm. And it's no accident that the female president of Harvard had a very diverse team, gender and otherwise. Um, I have been very attentive to that in hiring in every position I've had. And I think, I think um, for all of us, me included, to challenge ourselves to make sure the pool of people we're talking to and hiring from aren't all people who look like us, have our backgrounds, sound like us, have the same perspective. Mm -hmm. And you're gonna you know, always do better as an organization when you bring multiple perspectives to bear. One of my favorite student addresses of a Harvard commencement spoke about the diversity of the trees in Harvard Yard and how their endurance over hundreds of years was actually biologically fueled by what they gave each other mm. through the diversity of their root systems. And I, I, I've thought about that as a, a real analog to institutions and organizations that endurance is going to come from diversity. Mm. Endurance is going to come from a um, not only tolerating, but welcoming a wealth of ideas, including those that haven't been accommodated by an organization before or adopted. Mm -hmm. um, that's how we'll evolve and that's how we'll endure. Organizations, public sector, private sector, third sector. Well said, Christine Heenan. Uh, I'm going to let you have the last word again. Ladies and gentlemen, today we've been thrilled to have Christine Heenan on. She's a senior partner and chief communications officer at Flagship Pioneering, a venture capital firm out of Cambridge, Massachusetts, which is behind Moderna, the vaccine creator, and many other firms that you've heard about. Christine, final thoughts about the caring economy and the way forward. I think my final thought will just be to say hats off to you for publishing a book, what, three and a half, four years ago now with that title, because um, I am really deeply impressed by the extent to which care, both as a noun and a verb, is at the center of our policymaking now. Um, what the role of unpaid caregivers in, and the tax on unpaid caregivers in keeping our economy going, the role of caregivers frontline and otherwise in getting us through this crisis, and the jobs that companies have to do to care about the planet, to care about shareholders, to care about employees and not just the bottom line. So I would say um, thinking about care at the center is something you got to first. And it's great to have the rest of us um, paying attention and, and catching up to you, Toby. Well, thank you for that high praise. I really appreciate Christine and right back at you. Keep up the good work and uh, please come back with another project or two in the coming months. Thanks a lot.